On this week's episode of the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Matt George, and I'm looking at his bio right now doing this intro, and it's just too long to really even start. Uh, Matt is a former CEO of the Children's Home of Illinois, which was an amalgamation of a number of nonprofits that he brought together through mergers. He's written a book, The Nonprofit Game Plan, The Proven Strategy for Nonprofit Success. I'm reading it right now. It's an excellent book. He's a Harvard Business School coach uh, and a nonprofit advisor. So join me and as I interview Matt George. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Corley. Just wanted to let you know we are now sending out a weekly, very brief newsletter tips, tricks, pointers to nonprofit executives. That includes both board members and CEOs, executive directors. If you're interested in receiving this, please go to thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter and you can sign up. Once again, that's thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter. All right, on today's episode of the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members, I have the distinct, distinct pleasure of interviewing Matt George. Matt is a nonprofit advisor. He's uh, an author, and he's also a Harvard Business School coach. But you know, he's got a tremendous career in the nonprofit space. So we're, I hope everybody is going to enjoy today's conversation with Matt and what we're going to learn for those leaders out there. So Matt, if you would, if, please start off by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about how you became CEO and how you've come to doing what you're doing today. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you having me on, Michael. This is uh, quite an honor, and and uh, let's have fun. I I. I've been in the nonprofit world, I feel like, since I was 16 years old. I had a, a friend of mine who had cancer, and uh, I wanted to raise money for his family and help defray the costs of uh, the funeral. And and uh, ended up in my first fundraiser at age 16, raised $3,000. And, and uh, I remember the feeling of raising the money and giving the money to the family that was in need. And uh, the feeling was great. And it never left me. And, and fast forward a few more years to college, uh, I lived with my cousin, who was a, a famous football player at the time, Jeff George. He was a quarterback in the NFL for many years, and we were very, very close. And and we he had a lot of uh, teammates uh, that were eventual NFL players. And I learned early on the power of athletes, the power of good. And so we leveraged that. And so at age 20, I ended up raising over a quarter million dollars uh, for uh, for a cause that was related to cancer. And I brought in Walter Payton, who was my hero and, and for the Chicago Bears. And I was 20 years old. And here I had his poster still in my room back at back at home. And uh, here I'm sitting on stage with uh, Walter Payton. And and it, it just started the whole domino effect of making change and and really what I say now is changing lives and saving lives daily and that's that's just the model I've lived by since I was 16 and and Jeff going into the NFL I was a year behind and we went ahead and started his foundation and so for a 10-year run uh, I worked with his foundation raised money for um, causes all over the United States and, and in turn what was fun about it too is we actually did a lot of travel and and helped other quarterbacks uh, and played in their golf tournaments and uh, raised funds all over the country and and you know in in doing so I was smart enough to uh, start collecting and building my network and uh, 
fast forward now up to age 30, I uh, came back home to Illinois and uh, decided that, you know, I, I've been since age 20, 21, I've been a uh, CEO, a director of the foundation. And uh, then I started running a, a place called Youth Farm, which is a, a, a boy's home. And so these these kids were disadvantaged youth that were in the system, so to speak, and in the state of Illinois. And we did everything from behavioral health to uh, uh, education and, and you name it, and trying to get these kids to someday get back on track, number one and two, become productive tax-paying citizens is how I always looked at it. <laughs> Very good. And, uh, then in 2007, I merged Youth Farm into what was now the children's home. And the children's home has been around for 158 years here in Illinois. It's the largest social service agency outside of Chicago at close to 500 employees, 50 plus programs, 1,700 kids a month flowed through this agency. And uh, being the CEO there, uh, there was a lot going on. There was uh, everything from we had a, an autism school to behavioral health to foster care. Uh, to working with uh, really the streets of middle Illinois. And uh, it, it was probably one of the best experiences of my life. And and I did that for a long time. And, and last year at age 52, I said, you know what, I'm going to step away after 30 years of being in my position and, and we're going to kind of change routes. And, and now I'm going to help even more people. So it, what's fun about what I'm doing right now is I'm advising and business coaching all over the country and being able to help more people in more communities. Matt, I got I got to jump in and ask you. So going back to age 16. Yeah. Something special about you, something different. That's not normal for a 16-year-old. Fast forward 20, 21, those fundraisers, not normal. And right. then you you closest friend, your cousin's got at this platform, you could have used that to make a whole heck of a lot of money, right? Investments, and people do that. Why is Matt different? Did you know, two questions, why is Matt different? And did you know the nonprofit was gonna be your future way back when you were 16, 17, 18, 19, 20? I didn't know uh, really what nonprofit was. Um, I knew that for me, I was good in front of uh, talking in front of people. I was good at organizing uh, events and i had the connections at an early age to be able to have people pick up the phone and this was before cell phones so this was you know you pick up the phone and i, I remember calling walter payton and i left 10 messages with this foundation and uh this the funny story was that i picked up the phone one morning i was asleep and he goes you're one persistent guy and i said who is this they said he said this is sweetness this is walter payton i said you got to be kidding me and uh, two days later, I hop in my car and I'm driving up to Chicago. He, his foundation was on Golf Road in Schaumburg in Chicago. And I get there and I waited an hour and a half in the waiting room. I think he did that on purpose because I was so uh, annoying to him. And we struck a deal. And he, he said, what do you want me to talk about? I said, I don't care. I mean, I really don't. I just want you there. And, and it was the coolest experience. And and I knew after that event, at age 20, I knew that there were people not able to do that, to not, and, but I didn't, I still didn't know what it meant. And right. it's funny because 
I look back and it wasn't the money as much as um, that I left on the table. It was because I had cool experiences. I got, I went to seven Super Bowls. I went to the Olympics. I went to, you know, I had access to just about everything sports mm -hmm. or entertainment wise. But I do look back and, and think that from age 20 to 30 that I didn't do a good job of leveraging all of the relationships for 30 on. And that was a mistake. Now, I still have some pretty strong connections, but, you know, athletes get old and kids today don't care about certain things. And so, you know, it's it's what's current right now. So they're looking at, you know, uh Djokovic and ten, you know all these guys. It's just, it's it's a different era, and and it kind of changed. And but I did know this: I always cared about people, and I think that empathy piece really is what drives me. Um, I truly believe I, it's servant leadership. Um, I truly believe that servant leadership uh, should be instilled in more leaders. And I, I don't, I really don't think, I think if you don't have empathy, I think there's a piece of being a leader that you're actually missing and people are craving it. People are craving it right now. So, so you you have a really a stellar nonprofit career. We're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm holding up the book you wrote, the nonprofit game plan, a proven strategy for nonprofit success. And I hope everybody goes and gets, you can see I've dog-eared it and I've tabbed it because I'm in the process. I'm almost finished. The book and it's just fascinating matt to to follow you through through the book why'd you write it well it, it, it's a kind of a cool story i i was uh kevin harrington is the original shark on shark tank and he's the inventor of the infomercial and and uh, i saw him speak about five years ago and and um he was peeling out back so he you know he didn't have to talk to people he just peel off the stage and he was gone and I'm like, I know where he's going because I did this with all the athletes. So I found him and caught up with him. And I said, hey, um, my name's Matt George. I'm not asking for money and I'm not pitching a product. But I do run a children's home in, in Peoria, Illinois. And he went, okay, well, what, you know, what do you want? And I, I said, I have a couple questions for you, but I just don't want to talk to you on an escalator. Is there any way I can set up a call? And he goes, I'll call you in two hours. I got to, I got to get on a plane. And I'm like, me, he isn't going to call me. And two hours later, he not only called me, he did a whole background check on me. Um, he knew, oh. he knew everything about me. Um, and he said, why don't you be at this address at this time on this date, if you're serious about it? And he goes, what, what exactly do you want? I said, I need a mentor. And he said, all right, if you're serious, come come down. I didn't know where I was going. Ends up mm. being house. And uh, uh, long story short, we're just sitting there, and he says, Matt, you're going to write a book. And I said, okay. He picks up the phone. He calls the publisher. Nine months later, I had a bestseller on Amazon. Love it. <laughs> That's a good reason to write a book, I guess. It was cool. It was It was the neatest experience to be able to go through a process with somebody like him because to have, I've had many mentors in my life. And I truly believe in that, but, uh, he's a driver. Like he, he'll tell you when you're not very good at something oh. and 
he'll he'll be pretty strong and adamant about his his words. And I love that because, you know, at, at my age, I just don't need people pat me on my back. I just need people. I I want to learn every day. I want to get better every day. How do you do that? You have people that are going to push you and are willing to push you. And that's the older you get, the harder that is. Well, it is. And he sounds like a fascinating guy. His reputation is really a good one, and you're blessed to be working with him. But let me let me ask you this. So I, I read your book, and and it's and you beginning of this conversation, it's clear you have a big heart. Is that enough to be an effective nonprofit leader? Well, I, I think that's a big piece of it, but I also that I also think you have to know business. Um, you know, their business and strategy, and um, you have to care for the people. And let me let me let me just explain something. I, I think all of your listeners know this, but mission driven really is not just about the agency or whatever the nonprofit is. It's about what's in people's hearts. So people, as an example, we had a conversation about your wife. She doesn't do it as a job, even though that's her job. What right. she does it because not only is she good at it, she's passionate about it, and that's what sells. It's not that she's the best pitch person. It's because it's in her heart. And I think that the piece that a lot of uh, nonprofit leaders uh, either have or don't have. So I always look at it two ways. And this is, um, there's nothing scientific about this. It was just my opinion. But I think there's program people that are good at running programs. And I also think, but I don't think those are CEOs necessarily. I think there is the business and the business is what drives the people to perform and help drive the mission to help the kids or whatever it is. If there's no compassion and passion from the people that are on the team, then whoever the clients are, let's just say they're kids, those kids are going to suffer. So you can't, you have to be able to sit here and say, if I'm going to get dinged 25% on a grant for the next three years, and this program is going to be, instead of a million-dollar program, I'm at seven fifty. Well, typically, you don't lay off somebody. Or what, what you typically do is you just provide less services. Well, who gets hurt there? The mission, the clients, the kids. So it's my job as a CEO to make sure that it never gets to seven fifty. A program person... It's harder for a program person to drive those dollars. And I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying there's a negotiation tactic. There's a fundraising tactic. There's a personal brand tactic. So as a CEO, my personal brand raises money for wherever I'm at. I could go sell Girl Scout cookies. And my brand will sell, in my mind, more Girl Scout cookies than, than anybody. And that's just over time, what I've learned is the effective leaders, the effective CEOs, presidents, CEOs, directors, whatever you want to call them, have a whole overall holistic approach to running a business. So if people don't think, you know, nonprofits are business and we're just on our knees asking for handouts, they're crazy because I'll, I'll be honest with you, my, uh, the revenue uh, annual revenue at Children's Home each year was $36 million. I mean, picture, think about what the payroll is on that. 
So you could combine, I don't know, probably what revenue wise, four or five different chain restaurants, big chain restaurants, and still not have the revenue sure. that we get. So you better understand how to run a business, as I guess is my goal. Well, I think that's very interesting. And you make a comment in your book, and you're, you're starting to touch on this a little bit, and it's a direct quote, because a good not a good nonprofit is run like a business. Can you just talk a little bit more than that? And also, my next question is, all right, when should a nonprofit not be run like a business? So to run it like a business is important for uh, several reasons. One, you have a board. So they have a fiduciary responsibility to be able to tend to not only the financial piece of it, but the risk piece of it. So there's a lot of risk involved, especially at a place like a children's home where there is 1,700 kids that are in the system in the state of Illinois that are doing all kinds of uh, things. They're putting some tough situations. Some are homeless. People aren't eating. The list goes on. And then there's on, on the other side is not only are we running the business, we had an endowment. So I was a fundraiser. So I had to go out and be the brand of wherever I was at. And I had to go raise money. And so when I go out and raise money, I had to have that person or corporation or foundation trust me when I made the ask. Because anybody can make an ask for money, but the but not everybody can close. So then you have to close and then you have to build that that, that endowment or whatever it may be. So I knew in, in my career, I probably put on well over 250 fundraisers and there's a responsibility there but there's also a responsibility of having some heavy names good big names good names tied to some very cool businesses fortune 500 and so on so i had that responsibility but then the business piece you still have accounting you still have hr you still have um every department that a normal business would have as a matter of fact, turnover in social service agencies are very high. So HR has to be strong. In COVID, we could not take a day off. Where What was going to happen? So we had to manage 500 employees during a time where we still had to do in-home visits and we weren't allowed to go in the home. So there's just so many things tied to running the business that in a way it is similar to a hospital you couldn't take a day off you had to grind um you still had to make sure that your uh funding streams we had over 50 that they were secured and then you have to manage all of the revenue streams so i don't we had to go through program audits federal audits endowment audits and so what part of everything I just said is not a business? I could even argue that there's more business in what we were doing than a typical business. And so, but most people, and this is what I write about, most people don't understand that. They just look at it as a charity. And that's not fair to all of the great people who I call heroes that work in the nonprofit world. 
Because if we don't have people working at a place like the Children's Hall or the Boys and Girls Club or wherever it may be, United Way, hospital foundations, it could be anything. If we don't have those people, you don't even want to know what the outcomes could be because you just can't even put your head in, into that space. And I had somebody ask me once, I had somebody ask me, um, what would happen if there wasn't a children's home? And I said, you don't want to know. There's, you know, there'd be 1,700 kids on the street. So that's what would happen. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you saying that. I've had the discussion with several people over the years. I'm, I'm a former for-profit guy, ran a company, knew nothing about nonprofits. And of course, that's changed uh, over the last 12 years as I've gotten into this space. And I would, I've made the statement several times, it is much more challenging, dare I say difficult, to run a nonprofit than a for-profit for the reasons you just stated. Well, it, look at it this way. I, here's how I looked at it. In the business that I ran, if we made a mistake, somebody might die. If you make a mistake at Burger King, you just lose a little money. Absolutely. That's the difference. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the breadth of leadership uh, capacity for nonprofit leaders, as you just articulated, is real. It, it's quite challenging. You got you got the volunteers, you got the donors. You really don't pick your customers, right? No. I mean, it's it's a societal issue you're trying to address, so it, it is quite challenging. At what times should a nonprofit understand they are a nonprofit and not be run like a business? I, I don't know if there are any times. Um, you know, I. I think it always has to be run like a business, but I think if I kind of pushed a little deeper on that question, I would probably say when I'm speaking and I'm talking about the empathetic side of our business or the compassionate side of our business, or if I'm just talking about, you know, for probably the last 10 years, the, the employees, the, the team, um, you know, they're the most meaningful people. Uh, if you don't have the employees, it, the rest of the places are, you know, it's irrelevant. And you have to, it's very hard to hire people. And you hear this in every business, but there are not kids dreaming right now saying, I can't wait. I want to grow up and be a uh, special ed teacher. I don't want well, I, I can't wait. I'm going to be in, even an RN or a social worker or a child psychologist or a frontline worker. But here's the kicker. What if you don't have these people? So it, I think it, where I'm at in my life right now, one of the reasons why I'm going around and I'm actually writing another book right now, and I'm going around and I'm talking about, we have to let these kids dream again. You know, we can't have lack of teachers, lack of educators. We, we have to have people in our hospital systems. We have to have people in our nonprofit systems, in our school systems. And if we don't, we're in trouble. So true. And, you know, I, so I work with a lot of boards, as you know, and a lot of times we'll get into the conversation. You always, you, you always ask a contrary question to help through the strategic thought process. Well, what if you closed down and went away? 
and, and it always comes back to quality of life for the community. It's yeah, it impacts a number of people certainly, but what does that do to the community? Yeah, it's significant. Yeah, you know, like I I gave a talk yesterday to a group, and I said I will argue and debate you, and you will lose on this question. The question is, didn't you think it's your job to take your community and put them under your wing and take care of it at all times? And if you say no, I'll I'll debate you. Because my whole my whole point is is I don't care if it's someone picking up trash or not littering or holding a door for somebody or I don't care what the the thing is, but it's your job. And so we live here. And I drive down the street and I see someone throw a bag of trash out the window. It drives me nuts. Why do you want to live in a community where you are adding to the problem? So that's another thing that I kind of, I, I really talk about a lot is, is let's all take a step back and, and really kind of start over in our thought process of making sure that we take care of people. And I always, you know, I, I said this in a, in a talk recently, it's even at work, you have to have compassion and passion. You have to have passion for the job, but you have to have compassion. If I'm talking to you, Michael, and I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if you have a sister that's sick or a, your wife is struggling or I don't know. But I have to have the compassion to actually care that something may be going on. Instead, we just jump to the conclusion all the time. Of, Michael's just in a bad mood all the time. He's just, you know, what, that, that's not fair. So that... My whole nonprofit empathy piece right now is is really just talking. And I talk to a lot of kids all the time to say, just take care of each other. Just take care of each other. It's very simple. Stop bullying. Stop mouthing. Let's have a, a fun life. Well, you're, you're exhibiting the characteristics that made you a very effective leader. And uh, now I understand why you're doing what you're doing today. Let me see something. I'm going to get back to the book. And again, the nonprofit game plan uh, by Matt George, you discussed the benefits of competition and collaboration, both, which I thought was really interesting that you need to have both in the nonprofit sector. Would you talk a little bit about why you think that and how that permeates? Well, I'll start with collaboration. I think it's the most overused word and people don't know what it means. Um, and again, it's not an arrogant statement, but I'll debate you that, that there's no clear definition of collaboration. So if you have your community and you want the best for your community, shouldn't collaboration happen all the time? So do you think like in my hometown, when we have all these kids at a children's home, do you think there are any different kids at the Boys and Girls Club down the street or the United Way or Big Brothers, Big Sisters? It's the same kids. So why wouldn't I want to see you succeed? And, I, and you know, I know there's a lot of board members that, that listen to this. And, and, you know, I got into an argument once with a board member. And because what happened was, and then that person ended up not being a board member anymore. Because I was so adamant on my stance of this. They asked me, why do you raise money for other charities? I said, why wouldn't I? Like, I'm not, I'm not getting paid for it. 
so I would MC every year. I MC'd seven to ten events. Okay, and I would be an auctioneer, so I could go. I would auction the the items off, and I knew how to raise money. So I found that if our kids were working with a group over here, and this group was struggling, two things could happen. I could either use my power as being the biggest in town and really just whoop them up if I wanted to and, you know, take them over. Or I could do true collaboration and use my platform to help them raise money to help our kids, keyword our, our kids and to make them successful. And I, I honestly think this, this person debated me and abhorred me. And I, I took that challenge. And, and this isn't arrogant either, but she lost. Because the whole point of this is, and the whole point of the reason why you're in nonprofit work is to help people. It, it makes no sense to me. And so if I can help... So, Here's an example. This group was was netting about eighty thousand on an event. Well, I you know I sat down with their CEO and I said, "Here's the problem with that: you spent seven months working on this event. You probably really netted zero. Okay, so I said I'll work with you. I'm gonna volunteer my time. You need to get this up to a quarter of a million. It took me two years, three years, get it up to a quarter of a million. I peel off. I'm done." You don't need me anymore. And more leaders in communities, not just because you run a nonprofit, more leaders in communities need to step up and do that. Because now it's one of the biggest events in town. But that person, that CEO did not know the blueprint to be able to take it and scale. There goes back to the business question. You have an event making 80 for three straight years, netting 80. You don't know how to scale a business. Program person, which is fine. We need program people. But you have to scale this so you can actually breathe. So when their program did get cut, which it did, they actually had money to backfill wow. the program and they didn't have to lay anybody off. So that's what I mean by that. Matt, I think that's a great example and definition. And you know, and I could see that that board member having that mindset and position, particularly if they're from the for-profit sector. I mean, there really is a difference in mindset with collaboration between the two sectors. Can you talk a little bit about competition within nonprofit? Because you said competition's good, which is interesting in your book. Could you elaborate on that? Well, uh, so my whole theory was that if I was going to have an event, or I was going to have the best event and I was going to raise the most money. And if you sat there and thought any different as a competitor, bring it. I love that competition and I hope you succeed. I want you to succeed, but I'm still going to still strive to be the best at what we do. And I think there's, um, there's competition. I'll just tell you a quick story about competition. We, I went into a presentation and there were three groups that were presenting for about $200,000 and only one group 
was going to get it. And we were the most powerful group of the three. And I saw this group get up and present. And it wasn't even similar to my business. It was, it was about, um, camps and for stroke victims and, and, and the story that this person told and the need that they had was far greater than the need that we had. Now, I, we presented. And then at the end of the presentation, we withdrew. The reason we withdrew is because they needed it more. Even though that's the decision that a CEO should make. And my team could not believe it. And I said, listen, think about the people that are going to be hurt. We, If we lost and didn't get this funding, nobody's hurt. So we withdrew. And so that competition piece, even though I'm very competitive, there's also that empathy piece inside. And then you can take it a step further on competition where you can talk about like mergers and acquisitions. I, I don't think, I think everybody, especially boards, I think boards are worried about legacy and they don't want to be, one thing board members don't want to do is either fire and hire a CEO or they don't want to merge. They don't want to be part of it. They're too busy. Right. You're right. So those are the two things. But I actually think more nonprofits would be stronger for communities if they would actually take a step back and really look at their business. And are they making change like they say they're making change? And it's a hard question to ask. And... I have a lot of theories on what should and shouldn't happen, but you know, what happens a lot of times is they know they should make change. They hold on too long to not making change, which equals dollars lost. And then, so in my career, I merged a total of five nonprofits together and so I was, there was a time I was actually worried that I was the M&A guy. So everybody like, just stay away from him. He's going to come in. He's going to change. <laughs> Quick way to lose friends. Right. But, uh, but it's actually applauded by donors because, uh, uh, so if you're a big corporation, you're giving hundred thousand over here and a hundred thousand over here, you're now giving only one or a hundred thousand, but see it a true businessman or woman could go in and say, all right, here's the deal. I know I do need that too. We still are doing the, the same programming. We're actually expanding our program. And if we settle for 150 or so on. So my whole point in all this is if you're not making true change in your community with your program, why are you doing it? So if you had 50 programs you're telling me if you rank them in order, then why do you have 48, 49, and 50? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. You wouldn't do that if you had a for-profit business. If you had 50 items for sale, and every year the 50th item comes up the same, you might have to re 
relook at why number 50 never sells because nobody wants it or it's not needed. It's the same thing with our programs. Do you need eight after-school programs in a community? No. I could argue you need one. One good one. With collaboration. With, uh, very good. You know, you, 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 I'm sure if you gave a talk on that, you'd strike a nerve with people. But I think, you know, listening to you, you, it really goes back to it's about the community. What's best for the community? And are you humble enough as a leader to... It, and can you emotionalize and intellectualize that decision making that, yes, we this is not our swim lane or we're not good at this. Let somebody else do it. Let's or even merge. I, I just th that's such a it's such a rarity. Uh, but for you to exemplify that, I think paints a really good picture of folks. It, and, and, and let me ask you a little bit about merger. I want to get into the business side of a merger for the next few minutes. What conditions must exist for a merger to be? The appropriate pathway um it, it there has to be in my opinion it starts with boards so there has to be buy-in from a board member there has to be the business case the the reason what's the reason it sure is nice when the director of both sides wants to talk mm. That's not usually the case, but in the case of, so I'll, I'll tell you, I'll use a quick example. In 2007, I was running Youth Farm, which is now part of Children's Home. I said that earlier. I went to Children's Home, who was four times bigger than, than Youth Farm. I met with my board chair and I said, you know what? The governor is changing our programs. And we only had two. That, and if he changes our programs and doesn't fund X, we may have to look at shutting down in two to three years. So I went to the board and I said, are you okay if we start exploring? Now I did it. Exploring a potential merger. Mm. So I looked at, I spent time studying and looked at two or three different potential suitors, finally found Children's Home, went into them, we started a conversation. It was the fastest merger. According to our attorney, it was the fastest merger he's ever put together. We did it in less than 90 days. So get in a little bit of detail. Did you reach out to the CEO? I reached out to the CEO and the board chair. Of did both. Children's Home. And so my board chair, myself, their board chair, and their CEO, we all got together and started the conversations. And I remember their board chair, who I knew too, in, in our community said to me, he said, do you know you're giving up your job? Mm, mm. Like you're not going to have a job. And I said, yeah, I, I do know that. But I'm going to tell you something. I had 56 employees and we had 50 kids. And my job, I'm confident enough I'll get a job mm. somewhere. But I can't let these 50 kids go back into the system when I know they're safe under my my management. Sure. They're safe. My ask to you is, is that you do everything you can to protect my team, but you 100% have to take on these kids and uh, make sure they're safe. Mm. And that was the shake hand deal, and then we legally got it done, and it was the... Uh, 
it was probably and still is the biggest merger and nonprofit that's happened in central Illinois. And that was in 07 and it was applauded. And I didn't know, I didn't do it for the pat on the back, but what I didn't realize too, is that politicians and congressmen and all these people, I got letters from everybody saying, you fell on the sword for the right thing. And I really felt good about it. I really did. And I still, to this day, it was 100% the right decision. And, but I didn't have a job. You, you didn't have the job. You made the right decisions. And, and yet you came back and lo and behold, you run the place. Full circle. Right. I, <laughs> I'm a true believer things are meant to be. Uh, and that was uh, a blessing for me because it changed my life even more. Because we got to help more kids. We went from, you know, 1,700 kids a month. And there's a, uh, there's a charge, there's a responsibility that you have every day knowing that you have all these employees. See, I always used to say this. I used to tell my team all the time, and, and I'd say it every, every year, we have this big end of fiscal year meeting. And I said, it's not only my job to take care of all of you, but it's my job to take care of all of you and your families. And as a CEO, if you don't have that empathy and know that each one of these people that are putting their lives on the line, working in nonprofit work, that, you know, in my opinion, probably shouldn't be a true leader CEO. Well, Matt, you certainly exhibited that, and it exhumes in your your wording today what it means to be a, I wouldn't even say a nonprofit leader, really it's a leader, and having a depth of understanding, accepting the responsibility, being inspired by that, and then growing as the organization grows. Matt, you wrote the nonprofit game plan. Uh, where can anybody get that book, copy the book if they'd like it? Yeah, you can go on to Amazon and and, and get the book, and, and it's, it's appreciated. I, I give a lot of the proceeds back to children's home. And uh, so it's, uh, I still love children's home, even though I'm not there anymore and, and uh, still in contact with the team and I see them in our community. And, and, you know, when you have, when you've worked at a place that's been around 157, 158 years, um, you're just one person, one person of thousands and thousands that have worked at this place. And, and to kind of put it in perspective, uh, children's home was started six months after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. That was a while ago. <laughs> That's, that is too good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have with Matt George. He's a nonprofit advisor. He's a Harvard Business School coach, author, and just sounds like one heck of a good guy. Matt, thank you for what you're doing in your community, and thank you for coming on to our podcast. Well, I appreciate it. I hope uh, hope uh, your show is very, very successful. And let's get more people to not only listen to this show, but actually tell our kids to start dreaming and get into this work because it's the best feeling you could ever have. So thanks for having me. Right. Amen. All right. We just had a great conversation with Matt George. And this is the Recapping with Reed segment of this podcast. Reed, what are three observations or key points you'd like to share with the audience? The first point is that Matt said, if you don't have empathy, there is a piece of being a leader that you're missing. You have to have empathy as a leader. 
Absolutely right for the reasons he described. Number two. When it comes to collaboration, if you want the best for your community, shouldn't collaboration be happening all the time? Shouldn't you be collaborating with similar organizations to make a larger impact? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And he eloquently stated that. Yeah, that's good, Reed. And number three. And then when it came to competition for organizations, as long as it doesn't impact collaboration, competition can be a great driver to try to have the best event, raise the most money, make the largest impact on your community, as long as it does not impact your ability to collaborate with other organizations. Yeah, and even though he's very soft-spoken and had a genuine heart, you can tell he's very competitive, competitive with himself, wanted to always do the best, and that's really important for any leader. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Recapping with Reed, three points from our conversation with Matt George. And we will I-501 see you next week.